0: listening to the Maniculum. pointing the finger at the middle ages we bring you the choicest medieval nonsense discuss and evaluate it then pillage it for our own geeky purposes
1: it seems our guest episode with book squad goals wasn't really enough to get all this green knight out of our system so this week zoe will be presenting the actual medieval text Sir Gawain and the Green Knight This is a longer episode than usual. Zoe does her best to summarize and gloss over various stanzas. And during the editing process, I cut out a lot of our tangents. But there's only so short you can make an episode on such an important text. So, apologies if you were hoping for a short one.
0: Alrighty, so... For those of you who have been keeping up with what we are doing, we recently did a guest podcast with Book Squad Goals, and we covered the Green Knight film that had just come out. So now I figured why not look at the original tale? So this week we are covering Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This is a 14th century Middle English chivalric romance. It's part of Arthurian lore. Let's see. It's penned by an unknown poet who's generally called the Gawain poet, also known as the Pearl poet, because it's in a manuscript with a couple other poems, one that is um, called The Pearl.
1: I was going to say he's one of those kind of, or she, because we actually don't know, like, anything about this person so it could be a woman but it's it's one of those like lone genius things where someone somewhere wrote this down and we only have one copy of a manuscript with all this brilliantly written and unique stuff and mm-hmm. who knows how widely it circulated although there is a story called sir Gawain and the carl of carlisle that is clearly related to it so there are links to other middle english traditions but it's mostly pretty isolated.
0: Yes. Yeah, it doesn't really have the oral tradition that something like Beowulf would have because yeah. you know I keep using Beowulf as my touchstone for everything English and medieval and whatever. Anyway, I love I love Beowulf, but that's my own problem. So yes, if you're at all familiar with King Arthur lore, you'll immediately recognize Gawain or Gawain as one of King Arthur's knights, and you are totally correct. This poem fits snugly within the expectations of Arthuriana, especially in its form as a chivalric romance. But like Mac was saying, it in its itself is kind of weird because it's a kind of a one-off, a standalone, a one-shot, if you will. And there's not a lot of other lore that references the girdle or the the green knight mm. in any other way. So at the end of the poem it sort of talks about how, oh, all of King Arthur's men wear this green girdle now is sort of like a tribute to Gawain and blah blah blah, but it's never brought up in anything else really. So Is it really a tribute? Mm, Not that much. So it's sort of its own little isolated episode.
1: Also, just so you know, we're probably going to keep pronouncing Gawain slash Gawain's name differently. Because Gawain is, I think, the correct way. Or at least it's the way I hear people in the field say it. But when I was reading King Arthur stories as a kid, I always imagined it being said Gawain. And that kind of stuck in my head. And apparently I'm not alone in that.
0: No, and I've heard it very just variously and then we have the very unique pronunciation from the green knight film of garwin i was gonna say
1: that's definitely a standalone
0: (laughs) yeah that one that one's weird i don't know where they got that one from. it was only uh, king (laughs) arthur
1: maybe maybe it's just a nickname he gave his nephew
0: maybe that's because he just didn't know his nephew's (laughs) name he was an old man (laughs) in the film But, you know, go figure. Uh, We'll try not to harp too much on the film, but since we did just do that episode with Book Squad Goals, it is fresh in our minds. Uh, So, you know, go check that one out. Go check the film out if that is something you're into. But yeah, it it varies significantly from the original tale, which is why we are covering the original tale.
1: Although I do still think it's a better adaptation than most book to movie things.
0: That's valid. And it is very atmospheric. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so what is Arthuriana and what is chivalric romance? Ooh, I know this. Oh, go for it.
1: Arthuriana is a literary journal that Dr. Dorsey Armstrong edits.
0: Yay! Yes, we love we love Dorsey. And it, the word it has, has no, no other Armstrong. meaning.
1: It is just the journal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, which Purdue publishes, I believe, or at least hosts, Quite largely. Yeah,
1: I don't actually know how the internal mechanisms work, because my only involvements are doing volunteer copy editing and working at the distribution booth at Kalamazoo.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. Arthuriana, cool journal. Check it out. Dr. Armstrong is super cool. She was one of the big influences in getting me to go to Trinity, actually, so that's pretty fun.
1: She's also the writer of, if you're into Arthurian stuff, a really good modern English rendition of Mallory.
0: Ooh! Very nice. Those are hard to come by.
1: Based on the more recently discovered manuscript. Because someone needed to make a version Ah. that you could read without studying middle slash early modern English. Ah. This would be, if anyone's curious, a book with the catchy title, Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort D'Arthur, a new modern English translation based on the Winchester manuscript. The title sounds dry, but it is definitely good and definitely worth reading. And you should check it out if you're at all into King Arthur anything.
0: Oh, man. But anyway, so Arthuriana is sort of a more general term is the King Arthur lore. It's that sort of early English legend, that idea of King Arthur, which... When it's all broadly laid out, like, who really was King Arthur? Was he a Roman? Like, who was he? Blah, blah, blah. We don't really know. King Arthur could have been one person, could have been several people. It's sort of like the whole Shakespeare debate that was. Did they ever figure out whether Shakespeare was one person or multiple people?
1: I don't think I, it's been I, settled. I sort of lost
0: track of that one. Yeah. So that one's still going on. So same thing with King Arthur, basically. If you have opinions about Shakespeare or King Arthur, please let us know. I would love the teeth. But regardless... Arthuriana goes all the way back to early Welsh tales. You can get into some of the old European stuff. It also includes the history of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth, which they love the prophecies of Merlin in that one. It's very weird. What else would you count as Arthuriana? I suppose we could go even so far into the future as the Green Knight film if we really wanted to, or the the Disney rendition, or Guy Ritchie's King Arthur Legend of the Sword, any any of those retellings? I definitely
1: include all of that in Arthuriana. I've also heard the term "the Matter of Britain" used for like the various King Arthur stories from the medieval period. Oh, I don't know wow. when the cutoff for that is in time either, but yeah, I like it because it sounds very lot. kind of
0: mysterious. Official, yes, oh, the oh, Matter indeed. of Britain yeah but basically that sort of sprung up as historians, scholars, et cetera, the people compiling sort of a history of of Britain and its lore and the poems and things they wanted sort of a national myth, the way that Rome had one, and the way that you know Germany started to develop one and France has a bit one. later on, but yes, yes indeed,
1: which they call incidentally the matter of France. Oh, well, uh, do they? All the stories of like Charlemagne and his knights have the same like kind of titles. The Matter of France as Arthur is the Matter of Britain.
0: Go figure. You know, these these original names. <laughs> but yeah, so as as we get deeper into the Middle Ages, We want more of a national myth, something that you can identify. And if you could tie that back to ancient Rome, then that's all the better. Because, you know, of course, all of civilization started with Rome and Greece and blah, blah, blah. And I'm being facetious in case nobody could tell. But that is sort of where the idea of, like, the great Western civilization comes from. Yeah,
1: there was definitely an idea throughout the medieval period that, like, if you can't tie your cultural origin to the fall of Troy, then you ain't
0: yeah, basically. So that was an extraordinarily driving force throughout all of the Middle Ages, and that is included in Arthurian lore, even though a lot of the original texts come from Welsh stories, pagan traditions, things like that. So, you know, and then we get things like Old Welsh, we get English tales, some some Irish influence, not as much, like the Mabinogian, which was originally Welsh. We have the history of the kings of Britain, talked about that. That's basically where we get Arthuriana from. So it's this big amalgamation of a bunch of different traditions. So if anyone tries to tell you that like England has a pure history or a pure culture, that is definitely not the case. In a sense, sort of like America in that it's been cobbled together.
1: And honestly, if anyone starts saying phrases like pure culture in like a serious way, you should probably smack them.
0: You, you know, it's, it's not a good, not a good look. It's not. mm No. So anyway, that is our bit about Arthuriana. So let's get into this whole chivalric romance. What is a chivalric romance? Basically, a romance is an adventure story. It's a fiction. It's not the romance that we think of today. I think I've touched on that in a couple of episodes. We think about romance as in guy meets girl, blah, 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 or person meets person, they fall in love, however you want to define that. But that is not how the medievals define a romance. A chivalric romance originated in France with the... uh, gonna get the pronunciations wrong here we go uh chansons de guest which is a heroic folk song
1: i'm pretty sure you have to say it chansons de gesta.
0: <laughs> there we go anyway yes so the heroic folk song was sort of like beowulf in that it did have an oral tradition that was originally written down this was sort of like the guest of robin hood or the tales of robin hood that we now get it kind of comes from that tradition it's connected to that tradition and it was written down and developed into lyric poetry. So the chivalric romance turned these heroic folk songs into fictional adventures, and they idealize the heroes and the villains to encompass traditional themes. So think of like your classic Disney story. You've got a very clear-cut villain, a very clear-cut hero. Everyone takes on what we would consider traditional roles, and this is the medieval equivalent of that. So good and evil, archetypes, It's all very, very clear-cut. It's not supposed to be a history. It's not like the sagas. We don't get complex characters. It's very much, this is the good guy. He's a knight. This is the bad guy. But despite having these clear-cut definitions, as chivalric romance evolved as a genre authors started twisting that, turning that, and started playing with it. So Going in the Green Knight is actually a really good example of that that we'll get into. So it's sort of this back and forth of like, okay, we have to uphold these archetypes, but how can we we twist them just a little bit? How can we make it a little bit more interesting? Uh, I do also want to note that if you're trying to think of other chivalric romances or things in that line, you can think of the Lay of Marie de France. Characters like Lancelot come from this French tradition. We've got other, we did Bisklavir, which mm-hmm. is one of these lays. For our last Halloween episode, we're coming up on that. Are there any other things that you're? That are popping into your head.
1: Since I I spend most of my time with Old English and Old Norse stuff, so most of the chivalric romantic stuff there is just French stuff that's been adapted.
0: Yes, which can get very weird, very wacky. For those who are uh, interested in that, check out our Halloween episode from last year. We get into the Lay of Bisklaver and its Icelandic uh, rendition, which (laughs) took some liberties.
1: One of the things that's on my list of future things to do, so look forward to it, listeners, is Myrmin saga, which is an attempt by an Icelandic saga writer to write a chivalric romance. Like, So he's working in the genre, borrowing the traditions he's seen in French stories.
0: Alright, so there's a little background about the genre itself, so the poem itself was written in a Northwest Midland dialect of Middle English, which is basically, I think, the area right along the modern border of Wales that's still in England we don't know who the poet was, and the only surviving record of the manuscript is found in the Cotton Nero A.X manuscript, which is in the British Library. The poem is written in alliterative verse, which is like the alliterative Morta Arthur, as well as Beowulf and the Poetic Edda. So alliterative verse is used in Germanic tradition as well. So it's interesting that English adapts this with French tradition. So... England, again, sort of cobbled everything together because why not? That's how English was made. Yeah. We just shoved a bunch of languages into a pot.
1: One interesting thing to note is that this particular like textual transmission has a lot in common with Beowulf in that it's one of the great works of medieval English literature that survives in exactly one manuscript, which is notably... Crappier and more crudely made than most of the other oh. manuscripts of the era
0: amazing See,
1: if you look up the like the illuminations from this manuscript, they do look like a child drew them. Everyone has the same face. everyone has the same <laughs> beard. It's a very specific beard too. It's a blonde forked beard. everyone has it.
0: oh wow. I wonder if uh, I wonder if it's just a self portrait I
1: brought that up just- once. Forget in what class. it was in a seminar I was taking where we talked about Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. I think it was Middle English with Dr. Malo. And she said that uh, she was pretty sure that it was just, it was what was in fashion in the place and time. So the author just gave everyone the fashionable hairstyle.
0: Oh, wow. That's nice of him, though. Everyone's snazzy looking. And that's actually very useful to date a manuscript as well, thinking about that. But anyway, it also uses a style called Bob and Wheel, which I think just sounds fun. And it creates longer sections of rhyming stanzas interspersed with shorter non-rhyming sections, which can actually be done in the modern English translations that we have, or semi-modern translations that we have, so... As you're listening to it, if you think something's off, it's probably because it's using bobbin wheel. Because the first couple times that I read through this poem, whether it was a translation or in the Middle English, you kind of get caught up in the rhyming and then all of a sudden the rhyming stops and you're like, wait, what's going on? And that's the bobbin wheel. That's how that works.
1: I'm about to send you the, the picture I was thinking of. Ooh, yes,
0: do. Oh, wow. They they literally do have the same face. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's just the same head on everyone. Except for Guinevere, who has the same head, but without a beard.
0: She does have braids. That's pretty impressive. I can't draw braids. I mean, I can't draw, but, yeah. you
1: know. I mean, when I say it looks like it was drawn by a kid, I mean, I could do this. Because I, I have no artistic <laughs> skill. So if I look at something and yeah. go, like, I could do that. I'm like, yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That is a pretty decent standard, you know, for for all of this. Alrighty, so there's a couple different ways that we could get into the poem itself. Um, I can read some of it in the Middle English, but most of our listeners will not really understand what's being said because it sounds weird. And then I can get into some of the translation and then I can, I can summarize some of the longer sections. We don't need to go through the entire poem, even though it is, it is quite fun already. Yes. So, uh, we will throw this in the blog so you can see it. And do you want to read the Middle English? Since you're probably much more accurate than I am, or, or do you want to hear my attempt?
1: I can't guarantee I'm actually any better than you. I don't know. What part would you like me to read? I can give it a shot.
0: Uh, do you want to just go to the first the first full sentence? So.
1: seethen the sage and their assault, what cessed at Troy, the boch brittened and brent to brondechts and askers, the tulk that the traumas of Tresun they are rocked, What's trade for his treachery, the truest on earth? It was Aeneas the Athel, and his Hich that seathen the prequered provinces, and patrones Bicoma, well nech of all the wella in the West Illes. That's probably terrible. I'm kind of out of practice with Middle English.
0: I think it's much better than I could have done. For those of you who were trying to pick up on any of this, you probably got The Truest on Earth. Tried for his treachery, The Truest on Earth. Let's see, there's also Troy, uh, the Siege of Troy, the Assault at Troy. And then shortly after this, we have uh, uh, Romulus to Rome. So, again, like we mentioned earlier, everything has to go back to Rome because if you don't, and, and Troy, because if you don't have, you know, your glorious Western heritage history, then what good are you as a country?
1: Yeah. The trick is since Rome claims to come from Troy, if you can't link yourself to Rome, you can bypass it by linking yes, yourself to precisely. Troy. Which is how. If I'm remembering correctly, that's how Snorri Sturluson explains, like, he does his humorization of, of Norse pagan gods by saying, like, oh, they were, like, Trojan oh, kings wow.
0: and stuff. Oh, Well done, Snorri.
1: Or, as Saga Thing would call him, the infamous Snorri oh, Sturluson.
0: Very good. He is indeed. All right, so I'm going to read the same thing, but instead of reading it in the Middle English, I'm going to read it in Tolkien's translation in the Modern English. So... When the siege and the assault had ceased at Troy and the fortress fell in flame to firebrands and ashes, the traitor who the contrivance of treason there fashioned was tried for his treachery, the most true upon earth. It was Aeneas the noble and his renowned kindred who then laid under them lands, and lords became of well nigh all the wealth in the western isles. So you can see here we've got Troy, and then we have Aeneas, and then the next line is when royal Romulus to Rome, his road had taken in great pomp and pride. So we get Troy, we get Aeneas, and we get Romulus. So we have basically the Iliad, we sort of skip the Odyssey, we go straight to the Aeneid, and then we get Romulus and all of Rome, basically. All right. So,
1: all of these people, including Romulus, that are about to be listed are, I believe, theoretically other children of Aeneas. That's how they're like establishing the West European nations in the same yes, of framework course, of as course. the Iliad.
0: Uh, so, they're all royal descendants of Aeneas and blah, blah, blah. So, I'm going to skip some of this history.
1: What you need to know is some made up people founded some yes. nations that we've heard of, but. All of this is decided after the fact.
0: Alrighty, and then... It's Christmas. While New Year was yet young that yester-eve had arrived, that day-double-dainties on the dais were served when the king was there come with his courtiers to the hall and the chanting of the choir in the chapel had ended. So basically, it's Christmas, it's New Year's, everyone's celebrating. And then, lo and behold... For hardly had the music but a moment ended, and the first course in the court was as custom been served, when there passed through the portals a perilous horseman, the mightiest on middle earth in measure of height, from his gorge to his girdle so great and so square, and from his loins and his limbs so long and so huge, that half a troll upon earth I trow that he was, but the largest man alive at least I declare him, and yet the seemliest for his size that could sit on a horse. For though in back and in breast his body was grim, both his paunch and waist were properly slight, and all his features followed in a fashion so gay in mode. For at the human gaped aghast, from his face and form that showed, as a fey man fell he passed, and green all over glowed." Alright, so this is the first introduction of The Green Knight.
1: And it's also an instance of a recurring theme we're going to see is right before the Green Knight came in, there was this pause right before the feast where Arthur was like, okay, before we start eating, I want an adventure story. Yes. And then before anyone can tell one,
0: Ba-ba-da-bum. this
1: guy shows up and one happens. Yes,
0: precisely. All right, so let's break this down. So it's Christmas, and Christmas time games and festivities are basically what King Arthur wants in his court. At this point, King Arthur has already been renowned at this time. He's sort of in his prime, which is very divorced from the film, which is unfortunate.
1: You could even say he's before his prime. Yes, he's quite he, young. Is, he
0: is quite young. So, then we get the Green Knight popping in. And I do want to point out here that basically every time that we see a character introduced, the Gawain poet Make sure that you know that they're sexy. Yeah. Like yeah, every single time. Like all of these people are smoking. They're smoking hot. Because even though this guy is massive, he still has like a nice waist. Very slim yeah. waist. Yeah. You know, he's got that hourglass figure or like the Dorito shape for, for the guys.
1: And the whole next verse is about how nice his clothing looks Oh, works yes. On
0: completely. It. Like this guy is, he's walking in like it's a fashion show on a horse.
1: Are you going to read the rest of the description, by the way? Oh, I can.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think you should. I think it gives a good example of this. Okay, fantastic.
0: A little bit more context that I just want to bring in is that he's glowing in green. We get this idea. We also get the idea that he is otherworldly pretty much immediately because we get this idea that he's like half a troll. So he's probably at least half a fey creature, maybe half man. And then we get this line, as a Fey Man fell, he passed, which we're not saying he's falling over or anything. How would you describe that? If if you are fey, yeah, Fey and Fell.
1: Alright, well in, in this case, Fey definitely means this is Fey yes. like Fairy. Tolkien actually really observes the difference between Fey with an A, which is Fairy, and Fey with an E, which is fated, yes. because he's a philologist. Which is nice, but uh, fell is like kind of mysterious, otherworldly in a in a threatening way. Future Mac here. Meanings also include full of spirit, keen, intent, piercing, deadly, intensely destructive, dreadful, or terrible. Speakers of modern English may recognize this meaning in the phrase. One fell swoop, which is one of those fossilized phrases that kind of preserves an older definition.
0: So we do get this perilous horseman coming in. He sort of looks like a troll. He sort of looks like a fairy. We get this idea that whatever's going on is probably not great, but we don't really know what's going on. But he looks great while doing it. So... I do want to emphasize for those of you who have seen the movie, we don't necessarily get the idea that he's a tree man.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely new yeah. for the movie.
0: He's definitely otherworldly, but he's not an Ent. So anyway, how is he described? I'll go on. And this is about his clothes. All of green they were made, both garments and man, a coat tight and close that clung to his sides, a rich robe above it all arrayed within, with fur finely trimmed, showing fair fringes of handsome ermine gay, as his hood was also that was lifted from his locks and laid on his shoulders, and trim hose tight drawn of teacher alike that clung to his calves and clear spurs below of bright gold on silk broideries banded most richly though unshod were his shanks for shoeless he rode and verily all this vesture was a verdure clear both the bars on his belt and bright stones besides that were richly arrayed on his array so fair and set on himself and on his saddle upon silk fabrics, that would be too hard to rehearse one half of the trifles that were embroidered upon them, what with birds and with flies and a gay glory of green and ever gold in the midst. The pendants of his poitrail, which my footnote here says horsey breastplate. Does it? Which oh, it does. It says horsey, horsey breastplate. Who
1: did those footnotes?
0: <laughs> I don't know. But, yes. My edition does not have footnotes. <laughs> oh, mine does. So, yes, a Poitriel is a horsey breastplate. Uh, but, yes, a, anyway. I have a very
1: cheap edition. I got it for three bucks.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, the pendants on the horse breastplate, his proud crupper, his moy lanes, which is the bridle and the bit, and all the metal to say more were enameled. Even the stirrups that he stood in were stained of the same. That is Gold. And his saddle bows in suit, and their sumptuous skirts, which ever glimmered and glinted all with green jewels, that even the horse that upheld him in his hue was the same, I tell. A green horse, great and thick, a stallion stiff to quell, embroidered bridle, quick, he matched his master well. Very gay was this great man guised all in green. So, yes. Shall I keep going? Shall I describe his his big beard like a bush?
1: We can maybe not do the one about his armor, but I feel like we have to describe his hairdo, because it's fantastic.
0: Okay, so...
1: Also, my advisor once mentioned to me that when he was younger, he thought about growing his hair to look like this.
0: That is really impressive. Okay, so... Very gay was this great man, guys, all in green, and hair of his head with his horses accorded, fair flapping locks enfolding his shoulders like a big beard like a bush over his breast hanging, that with the handsome hair from his head falling, was sharp-shorn to an edge just short of his elbows, so that half his arms under it were hid as it were in a king's- I don't know how to say that word. I
1: don't either. I'm going to
0: look it up. Yeah, but it does have a footnote, so like a king's headpiece that encloses his neck,
1: Google is pretty sure that I want to talk about Cappadocia, which I don't.
0: <laughs> no, I mean is, not that is... there's
1: anything wrong with Cappadocia, but it oh, is it's definitely gorgeous. not the word I'm looking for.
0: No, but um, Cappadoce. Cappadoc, uh, I'm gonna go with Cappadoce. anyway. His uh, his headpiece. So yes, I think that we missed out on a great opportunity here in the movie to have this glorious man with like hair coming down over his shoulders. Yeah,
1: like if if you got lost in the wording, they're describing like hair and beard that together are almost like they're cut to the same length. So it's like he's wearing a little cape that comes down to his elbows all the way around.
0: Yes. It's very impressive. Incredibly impressive. And I, I do want to point out here that well, I love Tolkien's use of the word gay, because I think it's aged beautifully within the context of this poem, he is using gay as in, like, happy, and um, sort of like the word gaudy, like very bright, happy, impressive right. to look at.
1: Right. It's, it's just a happy coincidence that that could be accurate in more than one way.
0: <laughs> Incredibly accurate.
1: As we will see.
0: As we'll see, yes. Yes, indeed. So anyway, this is what this guy looks like. I do also want to emphasize that in one hand, he did hold a holly bundle. So they didn't keep that in the film because he does walk in with a holly bundle. And in the other hand, he's got this massive, ugly, monstrous axe, uh, which is also...
1: it's a nice axe.
0: Okay, well, Tolkien's translation says ugly and monstrous.
1: It does, but then it describes it and it sounds very nice. You know... Here, the phrase that Tolkien translates as ugly and monstrous is Hoga and unmeta." The former is just huge. It means huge. It's cognate in everything. The second, Unmetta or unmeet, is less clear. There are two available definitions, and Tolkien definitely made a choice in picking the one he did. According to the Middle English Dictionary, definition two which was Tolkien's choice, is unfit for purpose, undeserving of honor, unworthy, displeasing, horrible to look at, unsightly. Definition one, which I would argue fits better, considering that the axe as described is not unsightly, is extraordinarily great in size, weight, strength, etc., immeasurable, extreme in intensity, excessive, immoderate, untempered, not controlled by nature or reason. So... I think definition one honestly fits the context much better, but who am I to argue with Tolkien? Eh.
0: It's like a well-made gun, a well-made weapon of any sort. It's got tassels. Beautiful to look at. It does have tassels. <laughs> I love it so much. I love the Green Knight. Oh, man.
1: And a inlay. It sounds nice.
0: Yeah, it's a great axe. But anyway... All stared that stood there and stole up nearer, watching him and wondering what in the world he would do. For many marvels they had seen, because it's King Arthur's court, but to match this, nothing. Wherefore a phantom and fey-magic folk there thought it, and so to answer, little eager was any of those knights. And astounded at his stern voice, they stood stone still. So basically, I skipped a bit... Where basically the Green Knight pops in and is like, "Okay, who's in charge here?" Because I want to, I want to talk to him.
1: Also, Tolkien is very is more diplomatic in his translation than the original is because Tolkien has him call them a gathering, but the original has him call King Arthur's court a gang.
0: Ooh, very nice. I wonder what connotations that had in Middle English. A lot of the Middle English words that we have are more derogatory in modern English because the aristocratic would speak French and Latin as opposed right. to English.
1: I'm aware of this difference and new to look it up because I've seen it brought up in articles on the subject as like a kind of slightly insulting way to describe a court.
0: That makes sense. Anyway, basically King Arthur's like, Hey there, friend. You're welcome here. What do you want? And the Green Knight says...
1: And by the way, while Zoe's trying to find her place, let's make it clear that he is saying this with his mouth. He doesn't have a magic paper that makes Guinevere talk. Although I'm gonna say that was a cool effect in the movie. I liked it. It's not from the text.
0: Yeah, absolutely not from the text. But he does say, here we go, You may believe by this branch that I am bearing here that I pass as one in peace, no peril seeking. For had I set forth to fight in a fashion of war, I have a hauberk at home, and a helm also, a shield and a sharp spear, shining brightly, and other weapons to wield too, as well, I believe. But since I crave for no combat, my clothes are softer. Yet if thou be so bold, as abroad is published, thou wilt grant of thy goodness the game that I ask for by right. And then Arthur replies, Sir, noble knight, if battle thou seek, thus bear, thou'lt fail not here to fight. So he shows up and he's like, hey, I want to play a game. Interpret that how you will. Mm -hmm. And Arthur's like, okay, well, if you want to fight, then, uh, I don't know, fam. And the green knight reiterates, I don't want to fight. I want to, well, and then he insults them. He says, all these branches are but we were just children. So, you know. I was going to make
1: sure you hit that. If you skipped over it, I was going to bring
0: it up. Was <laughs> yeah, it like, he's he's <laughs> like, I don't want to
1: fight you. You're like children.
0: Yeah. But he has heard tell of King Arthur's great court and how amazing it is. And so he's basically challenging them. If any fellow be so fierce as my faith test hither let him haste to me and lay hold of this weapon, the axe, I hand it over forever. He can have it as his own. And I will stand a stroke from him, stock still on this floor, provided thou lay down this law, that I may deliver him another. So I do want to reiterate that the rules of the game are set out before... Anybody has picked up this challenge.
1: Yeah, and I also want to say that this is something that I mentioned when we were talking to the Book Squad Goals people. But in case anyone didn't listen to that one, in the movie, they make it very, very, very clear. Like I think it's even in the Green Knight speech that when he says a blow, it can be a minor wound. It do- it they can basically just walk up and like poke him, and that counts.
0: Mm-hmm. And, like
1: they they repeat this a couple times.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's correct. That is correct. In the text, it's much more subtle. He doesn't go over it. He just says a blow and then lets the reader and the court fill in what they think that blow would be. So it's possible to read this text, as I did the first time, and completely miss the fact that cutting off his head was not part of the game originally. That was Gowan's choice. didn't have to do it.
0: Exactly. And... This, I think, is one of the core themes of the text itself, because, spoiler alert, Morgana Le Fay is the one who sent the Green Knight to do this challenge, and she wants to undermine King Arthur's court, because she understands that it's built on the chivalric virtues and this sort of machismo attitude. And so she wants to use that sort of, I'll use the phrase, toxic masculinity or at least chivalric masculinity. To Same difference. Its, I mean, yeah, but I mean, like ladies were upheld to a chivalric standard as well, but that's not a theme of this text as much. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, this toxic chivalry. and uh, That's a good she,
1: phrase. We should keep
0: that one. I like that one. Yeah. I like it.
1: Toxic know. chivalry? Yeah.
0: <laughs> nice for all those white knights out there. Anyway, <laughs> yes, so she's undermining the basis of chivalry in this text does she succeed yes and no we're going to see how that works and this is a theme where we'll want to pay attention to it as it comes through again because this comes back to the idea that authors were twisting the chivalric romance in its form so does morgana get away with it We'll see. So note King Arthur says, good man, tis madness thou askest. And since folly thou hast sought, thou deserves to find it. So again, Arthur here is automatically assuming the worst. He's like, okay, you're going to give up your ax. If somebody hits you with a blow and then you get to hit them back, but um, okay, we're all knights here. We know how this goes in a tournament. You have to fight. And so, what do you expect? You're gonna get hit.
1: Yeah, and note that there is a pause in the text. Like, there's an entire stanza where no one answers, and the green Mm knight calls them cowards again. And then we have Arthur going, like, look.
0: (laughs) Yes. And then, from beside the queen, Gawain, to the king did then incline, I implore with prayer plain that this match should now be mine. So Arthur, like, originally picks up the axe and stirs it about his stroke considering. So he's like, eh, I don't know. Yeah,
1: because remember, he's young.
0: For mm-hmm. those of you yeah, who he's... saw the
1: movie just now,
0: oh, he's supposed dear. to be young. He's supposed to be young and all machismo, but also he's a king and a good king lets his warriors fight for him. This is one of the themes of Beowulf where Beowulf goes after the dragon and nobody else does. And is that his role? Is it Beowulf's role or is it his warrior's role? You know.
1: It's definitely not his role if he hasn't produced an heir yet, which he hasn't.
0: Yep. Precisely. So in this sense, Gawain's like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it because my king can't be putting himself in danger like this.
1: This is a scene that always reminds me of Star Trek. Oh? In the early seasons of Next Generation, one of the recurring things was that it was Riker's job as first officer to kind of step in whenever Picard was about to put himself in danger. Go like, look- You're not expendable. You have to stay on the ship. I'll do Mm -hmm.
0: it. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Alrighty. So Gawain takes up this mantle, uh, or rather the axe, and decides he will do it. Now, mind you, the rules have already been set. And the reason I'm explaining this is because in the film, I don't believe the other half of the deal was set out before Gawain struck the blow.
1: That he has to come back for the blow later?
0: Yeah, was that set out in the film? I think it's
1: in the film. I may have okay. filled it in, like, automatically, but I feel like it was set out. I don't out.
0: know. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But anyway, Gawain knows the deal. He knows the game. And I also want to emphasize that this is a game. And this is sort of the text being very meta. This is almost a fourth wall break. So when King Arthur's like, I want to hear about an adventure. I want to have a game. It's Christmas. Well, then one literally walks into his court, and it is a mm-hmm. game. The whole thing is that it's supposed to be fun, it's supposed to be light, and then Gawain goes and makes this all life-threatening. So,
1: Another thing that the movie took from the subtext and made it text, but I think that was a good decision.
0: I agree very much, I agree. Because it is it is difficult to pick up on if you don't know or understand these themes, if you haven't studied it. So, if I tell thee the truth of it, when I have taken the knock, and thou handily hast hit me, if in haste I announce then my horse and my home and my own title, then thou canst call and inquire and keep the agreement, and I waste not a word, thou wilt win better fortune, for thou mayest linger in thy land, and look no further but stay. To thy grim tool now take heed, sir, let us try thy knocks to-day. Gladly, said he, indeed, sir, and he stroked his axe in play. So the green knight, now on the ground, gets himself ready. Leaning a little in the head, he lays bare the flesh, and his locks long and lovely, he lifts over his crown, letting naked neck, as was needed, appear. His left foot on the floor before him placing he gripped the axe, gathered it, and raised it, and then decapitates him. Basically.
1: This is... Something that the movie kept exactly is that they had mm-hmm. him say like, "You have to hit me," and then the Green Knight kind of gets in position to make his neck available, like to to put that temptation in Gawain's head to go like, "You could just win right now, like right now, you could just, just chop do my it. head off, just do like, it." He, n- he never says you should; he just mm-hmm. implies it through body language.
0: He just puts it there,
1: yeah. and. It's like, here's an axe. Here's my neck. Look, I'll get my hair out of the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. Go ahead and hit me, you know, wherever.
0: Wherever, whatever you want to do. Now, this is very, very interesting because we already know in the context of the poem that King Arthur and his court have seen very many amazing things, marvelous things. And they see this guy walk in and they're all like, wow, this guy looks like a fairy. Now, why you would decapitate a half-troll fairy person and then be surprised... When they pick up their head, I don't know. But here we go. The fair head to the floor fell from the shoulders and folk fended it with their feet, as forth it went rolling, so they're playing soccer with his head. The blood burst from the body, bright on the greens, and yet neither faltered nor fell the fierce man at all, but stoutly he strode forth, still strong on his shanks, and roughly he reached out among the rows that stood there, caught up his comely head, and quickly upraised it, and then hastened to his horse, laid hold of the bridle, stepped into stirrup iron, strode up aloft, his head by the hair in his hand, holding, he settled himself then in the saddle, as firmly as if unharmed by mishap, though in the hall he might wear no head. He twisted his trunk round, that gruesome body that bled, and many fear then found as soon as his speech was sped. And then he says, you know, get ready, going, I'll see you next year. Come to the Green Chapel.
1: And this is the scene that's depicted in the illustration that we were talking about earlier that I'm sure will be up on the blog.
0: Yes. So, the text says they don't know what country he came from or what land he journeyed from, so now Gawain's gotta go find this guy. So here we go! He's the knight of the Green Chapel. And then with a rude roar and rush, his reins, he turned in and hastened out of the hall door. Which I think we missed a great visual in the film of having him with his long hair, like picking picking his head up mm-hmm. by the hair. Like that would have been so cool. I don't know why they turned him into an ent. I guess it's more otherworldly looking. I think it would have been far yeah. cooler to see him like green all over, but like such long hair. Anyway. I agree. That is the first part of this poem, basically. That's the premise. And Gawain gets kind of reluctant about going, and he stays through Halloween, and yet till all hallows with Arthur he lingered. So, uh, we're just going to remind everybody that they don't know where the Green Knight has come from Mm -hmm. at all, so he might be beyond Britain. They don't know. All he got was, like, there's no GPS coordinates here. It's just, come find the Green Chapel, dude. That's it.
1: Yeah, but it's also kind of a genre convention that, like, they always arrive right on time.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: It's like a superhero movie. They always show up in the nick of time.
0: Yes, but we do get people who are um, upset about this. And for after the meal at Halloween, basically, he reminded his uncle that his departure was near. So Gawain is King Arthur's nephew, but Morgana is not Gawain's mom. Just to clear that... For the record, if you've seen the film, they're not related.
1: They Morgana, are
0: related. Well, Morgana can be Arthur's half sister. It depends yeah. on what version of the tale you're looking at. But my point here is Gawain is not Morgana's son.
1: No, no.
0: In no way is that in any part of Arthuriana, as far no. as I know.
1: He's the son of Arthur's other sister. Yes. Whose name is Morgaus, So, like, maybe they just got confused.
0: Ugh. Mm. I don't think so, but alrighty. But anyway, then we get this lovely little thing of Gawain being all beautiful and furred in ermine and his horse, Gringolet. Gring, I don't. Gringolet. All groomed and pretty and beautiful and.
1: Mm-hmm. Everyone's get, very pretty.
0: Yes, they all get very uh, excited to go on this trip.
1: Even the horses. The horses are pretty.
0: They're all pretty. And then something I'd like to highlight here. He has a shield with the pentangle on it. And the pentangle is a pentagram. That's all it is. It's just the five-pointed star.
1: If you sit down and draw a five-pointed star right now, it's that star. That's the pentangle.
0: Yes. And our poem tells us that it is a sign that Solomon once set on a time to be token as it is entitled to do, for it is a figure that in it five points holdeth, and each line overlaps and is linked with another, and in every way it is endless, and the English I hear everywhere name it the Endless Knot. And this is a symbol that is connected to Solomon, it is a symbol that connects to knighthood in that first faultless he was found in his five senses Next in five fingers he failed at no time and firmly on the five wounds of Christ all his faith was set as the creed tells us and then we have the five joys of valor that to heaven's courteous queen that is Mary once came from her child so blah 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 we have all of these five 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 five. we have five patterns of five we're sanctifying going.
1: The fifth one is he has five virtues, which are free giving, friendliness, chastity, chivalry, and piety.
0: Yes. So these are going to be tested as he goes out. That is the point, which is why we are highlighting them. Alrighty. So anything to add to this before he heads out?
1: I think it's cool. And the addition that I... Left in my office today because I'm an idiot. Has a picture of Gowan's shield as the cover illustration.
0: Oh, that is so cool!
1: Yeah, and it's it's the whole Pearl manuscript, but like that's obviously the important visual from the manuscript. Yeah.
0: Alrighty, and then as we go through, he asks people about the Green Chapel as he travels, and everyone's like, yeah, we've never seen this, we have no idea what you're talking about, my dude. And then...
1: Are you about to fast forward through the, like, the travel montage? I was montage? about to get
0: to the travel montage.
1: Okay, do the travel montage.
0: Okay, I love the travel montage. And this, I think they did very, very well in the film. I don't know why they incorporated... What's her name? Which saint did they incorporate?
1: Winifred, and I have an answer for that now.
0: Ooh, and like an actual answer? Kind of. Uh-huh.
1: Context in summary, because past Mac waffles a bit on this, in the Green Knight film, St. Winifred makes an appearance. When we were on the Book Squad Goals podcast, we speculated about why this would be, didn't really have good answers. My guess was that it was a nod to Cadfael, but that was a very weak argument, and honestly probably just popped into my head because I had recently started reading the first Cadfael book. However, someone I follow on Facebook asked the same question, and someone who... I don't know, and so I don't remember their name, I'm sorry, suggested a much better answer that apparently has been presented in, like, actual scholarship in the past. So, after Zoe reads the travel montage, we'll talk about that option
0: we get this travel montage and I think the film did an excellent job of incorporating and expanding upon and really getting into Gawain's travel and trials and so on and so forth, because it is kind of glossed over. And so I think they did that very, very well in the film, but regardless, here we go. So many a marvel in the mountains he met in those lands that it would be tedious the 10th part to tell you thereof at wiles with worms, he wars and with wolves also. So worms is, typically understood as dragons, like
1: rims. Mm, that's worms with a Y.
0: Yes. And with wolves also, at wiles with wood trolls that wandered in the crags, and with bulls and with bears and with boars too at times, and with ogres that hounded him from the heights of the fells. Had he not been stalwart and staunch at steadfast in God, he doubtless would have died, and death had met often... For though war wearied him much, in the winter was worse, when the cold, clear water from the clouds spilling froze ere it had fallen upon the faded earth. Well nigh slain by the sleet, he slept iron clad more nights than he now, in the naked rocks where clattering from his crest the cold brook tumbled and hung high o'er his head in hard icicles. Thus in peril and pain, in passes grievous till Christmas Eve, that country he crossed all alone in need. It's a good stanza. It's a great stanza.
1: Although I'm not sure, I feel like the original says wood woes instead of wood trolls. So now I'm trying to find that. Ooh. Because that's different.
0: Yeah, it does say wood woes. Oh, interesting. Okay, so enlighten us on what a wood woe is.
1: Wood woes is not a, well, and this is probably Tolkien's love of the sagas actually coming back in. <laughs> Because we think of trolls as a different species than humans. But in the Icelandic sagas, humans can turn into trolls if they live away from other humans for too long. You can go out in the wilderness and live in the mountains and you eventually become a troll.
0: I feel like this perfectly describes what internet trolls are.
1: That's actually pretty solid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, keep going.
1: But that's also what a woodwose is. A woodwose is a wild man, a man who has gone to live in the woods instead of living as a human.
0: Nice, that's so cool. Oh, I like that way better.
1: Ah, a tie to saga thing, as they have pointed out. This is not unlike the Grinch.
0: That's true.
1: He lives in the mountains, and he's turned into something that's not the same as the, as the rest as of the, the, the people in the town.
0: Hoos. Oh, nice! Yeah,
1: I actually have an ongoing theory that the Grinch is inspired by Grendel, but I've never gotten around to writing that
0: paper. Ooh, that sounds fun!
1: Oh man, because like it's same first syllable. He lives out in the wilderness, and he's it's like
0: monstrous,
1: angered by the songs he hears.
0: No, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. oh, you're
1: right. I think that's where it comes from. Huh? That was a distant tangent.
0: Anyway. So the film does this in a really, really cool way. But they do include St. Winifred. So please enlighten us on why St. Winifred is even in this film. All right. When she's not in the text.
1: This is actually the stanza right before the one you just read Okay. All the isles of Anglesey he held on his left, and over the fords he fared by the flats near the sea, then over by the holy head to high land again in the wilderness of Wirral. Now, there is a holy head in Wales— But it's on the Isles of Anglesey. That's right. And it just said he kept them on his left. Mm -hmm. And so there is a theory that this line is actually referring to Holy Well in Flintshire, Wales, which is where St. Winifred was killed.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting. So we're tying into that. He
1: passes through this area that's known for St. Winifred's Well, so... The people making the movie were like, well, this is the area that we need to fill with various adventures, because it says he has adventures, but it doesn't give any specific ones. Yes. And so they included St. Winifred. That's
0: cool. I like that. And they did get her story right, which was very fun. They were, yes. they were more accurate to that story, I think, than two than Gawains. <laughs> All right. So anyway, he travels along, and he's basically at his wit's end, and he's like, Mary, please save me by the pentangle. I can't do this anymore. And lo and behold... This beautiful castle pops up.
1: Wild how that keeps happening. I want an adventure. Here's an adventure. I want a place to stay. Here's a place to stay. It's almost as if, you know, there's someone with magic fairy powers just kind of watching and making sure things happen in the right way. Morgana
0: or the narrator? Uh, both. (laughs) Good answer. All right, so anyway... Gawain gazed at the good man who had greeted him kindly, and he thought bold and big was the Baron of the castle, very large and long, and his life at the prime, broad and bright, was his beard, all beaver-hued, stern, strong in his stance upon stalwart legs, his face fell as fire and frank in his speech, and it well suited him in sooth, as it seemed to the knight, a lordship to lead untroubled over liege's trusty. So, here we get our... Hunky Lord Bertilak, as he'll be known. Yep. And again, there's coverlets cunning wrought with quilts, most lovely of bright ermine above, embroidered at the sides, hanging runnings on ropes with red gold rings, and carpets of costly damask that covered the walls and the floor underfoot fairly to match them. So, you know, there's more speaking gaily, blah, blah, blah.
1: And then they get Gawain out of his armor and dress for dinner, and we get some about how sexy Gawain is.
0: Yes, yes. As soon as he had donned one and dressed was therein, as it sat on him seemly with its sailing skirts, then verily in his visage a vision of spring. To each man there appeared, and in marvelous hues, bright and beautiful, was his body beneath. So, like, he's filling this thing out. <laughs> like, like <laughs> the Gawain poet is just really into every single one of these characters he's described.
1: Yeah, they they are all just incredibly hot. Everyone it's, in this story.
0: It's ridiculous. And so they have dinner and everyone's like, oh, yes, we've heard of you, Gawain. This is lovely. I can't believe you've come for Christmas. This is great. And let's see.
1: They also mentioned that Gawain's reputation as a flirt precedes him because some of the yes. ladies of the court are like, We're going to hear some good love talking from Gawain. Mm
0: -hmm. We've got Gawain as a guest. So when blissful men at board for his birth sing lyth at heart, what manners high may mean, this knight will now impart. Who hears him will, I ween, of love speech learn some art.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the passage I was thinking of.
0: He's a flirt, basically. And then uh, we get... The moment when the lady longed to look at this knight and from her closet she came with many comely maidens. She was fair in face and her flesh and her skin, her proportions, her complexion and her port than all others. And more lovely than Guinevere to Gawain she looked. And then we do get the old lady who's all like old, who is in the film, but it's not clear why. But anyway, she's really old. Uh, And we get more depiction of how... um, how the maidens of the house are very comely, and...
1: Yeah, I guess the old woman doesn't get to be sexy, although it does give her a nice outfit.
0: Yes, yes it does. So...
1: Oh, and just to be clear, because we're probably going to use these names without explaining them at all, in the movie, no one is given names. At all. In the text, the Lord and Lady are Lord and Lady Bertilac.
0: Gawain and the gay lady, seated together, were in the center of the table. So, again, we get this... Lovely usage of that language from Tolkien, which he doesn't realize how wonderfully that ages. And we'll get into that. The lady and Gawain chat for a while, and then I want to get to the, the deal that they make. So basically, Gawain's like, Thanks for this Christmas dinner, but I gotta go. And the Lord Bertilek says, No, 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 like, You've got to stay here, the Green Chapel is just down the road, don't worry about it, you can stay here until then." And Gawain's like, "Ah, well, I mean, okay, fine, I'll stay. And then here we go. One thing more, said the master, that is, Lord Bertilek. We'll make an agreement, whatever I win in the wood, basically once he goes hunting, at once shall be yours, and whatever gain you may get, you shall give in exchange. Shall we swap thus, sweet man? Come, say what you think, whether one's luck be light or one's lot be better. By God, quoth Gawain, I agree to it all, and whatever play you propose seems pleasant to me. Done, tis a bargain. Who'll bring us the drink? Said the lord of the land. So, they make this deal. Gawain has no problem with this. Can we
1: take note of the phrase... Whatever play you propose seems pleasant to me. (laughs) Because that sounds way more suggestive than I think Tolkien meant it to.
0: True. But also, in that word play, we come back to this idea of a game. Mm -hmm. So, Gawain is in the middle of two games at the minute, and he doesn't realize that, hint, hint, they're connected.
1: Also, in the, like, multiple stanzas we skipped that are just about how nice the court is... It does mention that, hey, they play some really nice games while they're hanging around the table.
0: Wow, it's almost as if this is a theme. I know, right? Whoa. So anyway, I'm basically going to skip the hunting episodes, which I know there are probably some scholars out there who would lament that, and you can read a lot into them.
1: Oh, yeah. Lots of people like these, but you know what? He, he goes hunting. You know, He goes that's, hunting. That's you know? all you need to know for the plot.
0: Yeah, basically. However... Gawain gets up to some mischief. Meanwhile, Gawain's napping, he's sleeping in, and.
1: He doesn't want to go hunting. He's just been riding all over the place. He's going to have a nice, lazy morning.
0: Yeah, nice lion. So, it was the lady herself, most lovely to see, that cautiously closed the door quietly behind her and drew near to his bed. Then abashed was the knight and lay down swiftly to look as if he slept. She stepped silently and stole to his bed, cast back the curtain and crept then within and sat her down softly on the side of the bed and lingered very long to look for his waking. So he's faking being asleep and she's waiting for him to wake up and then we get to some of the more interesting parts where he does wake up or he feigns waking up and she says good morning sir Gawain," said that gracious lady you are a careless sleeper if one can creep on you so now quickly you are caught if we come not to terms i shall bind you in your bed you may be assured Tinky. With laughter the lady thus lightly jested. Good morning to your grace, said Gawain gaily. You shall work on me your will, as I well am pleased. For I submit immediately, and for mercy I cry, and that is best as I deem, for I am obliged to do so. Thus he jested in return with much gentle laughter. So there are some clear undertones to this. And then other undertones that we don't always understand is that technically, according to that code of chivalry with the whole pentangle thing, a knight cannot refuse a lady Mm. whatever she wants. And so now he's trapped in this dilemma of like, I'm naked in bed. This lady wants to bed me.
1: You do have to remember this is before they'd invented pajamas. One of the things he does mention just a few lines from now is like, in order for this to be all... Polite and correct and chivalric, you kind of need to leave so I can get dressed like we can talk, yes, but I want to be wearing point. clothes,
0: yes, and she basically says to my body, you will welcome be of delight to take your fill for need constraineth me to serve you, and I will, so she's offering him herself to him after threatening to tie him to the bed. So, you know, whatever does. It for I just you. realized
1: all my eyebrow motions are definitely not making it onto the recording.
0: <laughs> I appreciate them as an audience of one. So he basically gives her a kiss instead. And they chat for a long time. And the lady demeaned her as one that loved him much. And he fenced with her fealty ever flawless in manner so he's still he's being courteous about the whole thing
1: and you know she is coming on very strong but he is flirting back a little like he is kind of into it he just he just can't like he knows he can't like it's it's very against the rules
0: Yes, but he does say, I will kiss at your command, as becometh a knight, and more, lest he displease you, so plead it no longer. She came near thereupon and caught him in her arms, and down daintily bending dearly she kissed him. They courteously commanded each other to Christ. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Yeah,
1: that's definitely how that worked.
0: mm mm-hmm, because this is a Christian poem. Yes, very <laughs> Christian.
1: I mean, to be fair, there is a lot Uh, of Christian stuff in there, but that does seem, that one sticks out as like, you just put that in there, didn't you?
0: (laughs) Well, let's see, this this is where we get that back and forth of themes of like, okay, how much can we twist this? Because I do want to point out, she is the one who takes him in and she kisses him. Mm -hmm. This is important because he is receiving the kiss. He's the one who is receiving. And so then when Bertolite gets back, they exchange kisses. Bertalic says, I give all of it to you.
1: The deer as that he has
0: accordant, Yes, you may claim it as your own. That is true, Gawain returned, and I tell you the same. What of worth within these walls I have won also. With as good will, I warrant, tis awarded to you. His fair neck he unfolded then fast in his arms, and kissed him with all the kindness that his courtesy knew. There take you my gain, sir, I got nothing more. I would give it up gladly, even if greater it were.
1: I bet you would.
0: That's the thing, and that is the crux of the issue. So, basically, to flesh this out, that's probably the worst <laughs> use of that word I've ever used. Um, <laughs> that was not great. Anyway, to, uh, to, to fill this out, that's not better right. either. <laughs> Damn, it. Damn it, Gawain. Which one's being filled out? Well, that's the crux, isn't it? So remember how Gawain was the receiver, and in this case, he is the giver. Yep. Yeah. So he would give up gladly, even if greater it were. So that means if he received sex from the lady Bertilac, would he? He would be giving sex to Lord Bertilac, because I've got a I've got an article I can get into that says that. Gawain would be receiving that. And therefore, in each of these cases, he's effeminized. Mm -hmm. So that is one interpretation. So I think one of the ladies in Book Squad Goals said, okay, well, if he did actually, you know, have sex with a lady, would he have had to do the same thing with Bertilek? The answer is Yes. yes. And mind you, Gawain says he would do this willingly. Yes, he did. So... You know, whether that's being generous or whether he's saying this literally is up to interpretation. But the gay undertones are less undertones and more overtones yeah. in this text. And that is something that we totally lost in the film, which is so Well, I mean, there
1: was that one scene.
0: Okay, it was a singular kiss and it was under duress.
1: I, as I mentioned in the Book Squad Goals episode, I did see a tweet going around where someone was like, I don't know. I feel like The Green Knight is going to be too queer for medievalists. And someone else who's actually a medievalist responding like, Okay, have you read the original text and have you ever met a medievalist? Because I feel like our main complaint is that this movie should be more queer. Like, by a lot.
0: It absolutely needs to be more queer. But anyway, so... This happens twice more, and I won't belabor the point because we are getting, I don't want to make this two episodes, but this this happens twice more, basically. So first is a deer and then a boar and the third time a fox.
1: There's an important difference on the morning with the fox. I assume you're about to cover that
0: yes and I will say that thus she tested and tried him tempting him often so as to allure him to love making whatever lay in her heart but his defense was so fair that no fault could be seen nor any evil upon either side nor aught but joy they wist they laughed and long they played at last she him then kissed with grace adieu him bade and went there so she list so
1: I feel like this this whole thing is clearly just a complex scheme on the part of Lord and Lady Bertilac to set up threesome
0: absolutely that is the case so anyway here we go the second episode of this game basically and then let me get to the third one here all right so basically she gets really upset about this and she's like do you have another lover or something like why won't you sleep with me and he's like no i I do i do love you and she wants to give him a gift before he goes off on his final quest. Now, this is in fact part of the game. So first she offers him a rich ring of red gold fashioned with a stone like a star standing up clear that bore brilliant beams as bright as the sun. I warrant you, it was worth wealth beyond measure, but the knight said nay to it. He's like, no, no, this is too expensive, I I can't accept this, this is too much. And so she says, I shall give you my girdle, less gain will that be. She unbound a belt swiftly, that embracing her sides was clasped above her girdle under her comely
1: mantle. And in case anyone's picturing, like, a different kind of girdle, in medieval context, it's just like a strip of cloth that you use as a belt. It's not like those semi-corset things that are called girdles in modern
0: parlance. No, definitely not. Fashioned. It was of green silk and with gold finished, though only braided round about embroidered by hand. And this she would give to Gawain and gladly besought him of no worth, though it were, to be willing to take it. He initially is like, no, no, okay, no. And then she says, okay, but if you wear it, you will not be killed by any cunning of hand. And he accepts it.
1: And it, And it's very specific as to why.
0: Yes, on his honor, hide it from her husband, and he then agreed that no one should ever know, nay, none of the world, but they. With earnest heart and mood, great thanks oft he did say. And so then she kissed him a third time that day.
1: There is a moment in that stanza of internal monologue where Gowen basically says, Hey, this is exactly what I need to survive getting my head chopped off tomorrow. Great.
0: Yeah. That's handy. Then Bertilic comes back and Gawain says, Let's fulfill our covenant. He clasps then the knight and kisses him thrice as long and deliciously as he could lay them upon him. By Christ, the other quoth, you've come by a fortune in winning such wares. Were they worth what you paid? Well, we'll find out. Indeed, the price was not important, promptly Gawain answered. Whereas plainly is paid now the profit I gained. And all he gets is a fox which is sort of an ill omen, mm-hmm. which in the film is a helpful companion. And that is not, again, subversion.
1: I, I liked it. I thought it was good. The fox thing. I mean, I, loved I liked the having fox. the
0: fox. I, the fox was cute, but the symbolism of it. Bleh.
1: I was worried about it the whole time, though. I know that in the text, the only fox that shows up is the one that Bertilak kills. Is this fox going to die? And that was like my whole thing. Like the whole time it was on screen. Yes.
0: Oh yeah, entirely. But no, the fox doesn't die in the film, so you can you can rest easy on yeah. that one. Uh, that's a spoiler. I'm happy to give.
1: You need no. to know going in, like, does the cute animal
0: die? Like, yeah, obviously. So he gives him the kisses, and the Lord is like, "Oh, so what price did you pay for that one?" And, and Gawain's like, "That's that's not a part of the deal. I don't I don't, I don't have yeah, to say don't you have that." Don't questions. Don't worry about it.
1: Definitely yeah. didn't get anything else this morning that I should be giving to you.
0: Uh Uh-uh, nope, whatever. No other gifts. And so... (laughs) And so he fails in his chivalry here. And also, we'll see, he will fail in his bravery. Mm -hmm. So he does uphold his knightly virtue of chivalry in, like, romantic terms, but not in the courage terms. So, New Year's pops up, and then... Oh, yes, we get Gawain strapping his brand upon his buxom haunches, which I highlighted. <laughs> um, <laughs> because Gawain's got that ass. Um, yeah, so he he ties about his buxom haunches that green girdle of silk and gallant it looked upon the royal red cloth that was rich to behold. So yeah, he's he's got his belt on. Oh, and
1: even, even though we said Christmas time at the beginning, and I think the movie also says Christmas time, it's... This is 12 days of Christmas-style Christmas time. New Year's is part of that.
0: He finds the Green Chapel, and mind you, this is described as a place where the worst white in the world that in that waste dwelleth, for he is stout and stern, and to strike he delights, and he is mightier than any man upon Middle-earth is, and his body bigger than the four best men that are in Arthur's house, either Hester or others, as all goes as he chooses as at the Green Chapel."
1: That's white, W-I-G-H-T.
0: Yes, as in supernatural thing. Yeah,
1: Or just guy, but it, it, it became a supernatural thing because cause all, all through Old and Middle English, it just meant like a person. But then it kind of died out, and Tolkien revived it to describe his Barrow Whites.
0: Mm, and ever since then, it's meant fair. a
1: supernatural creature.
0: True. The Green Chapel is not described as a chapel, so... It's sort of an overgrown chapel in the film, but here in the text it is described as a mound as it might be near the marge of a green, a worn barrow on the bray by the brink of a water beside falls in a flood that was flowing down. The burn bubbled therein as if boiling it were. He urged his horse on then and came up to the mound. Then he went down to the barrow and About it he walked, debating in his mind what the thing might be. It had a hole at the end and at either side, and with grass in green patches was grown all over, and was all hollow within, not but an old cavern, or cleft in a crag, and he could not name it aright. Can this be the green chapel, O Lord, said the gentle knight? Here the devil might say, I think, his matins about midnight.
1: Excellent description. It is super cool that the green chapel is like, a barrow or a mound, because that's definitely associated yes. with the supernatural more than, like, the religious. Yes. One of the things that happened in between was he he was guided there by, like, one of Bertilak's people. And there was yes. another test there where the guide turned around and said, look, if you just leave, I won't tell anyone. And technically, Gawain passes that one because he says, no, I'm going. But... Mm -hmm. Really, he fails because it's possible that the reason he's able to say that is because he thinks he's got the magic girdle.
0: The girdle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mm -hmm.
1: this would have been a genuine test if he hadn't already failed the previous test.
0: Yeah, precisely. Alrighty. So basically, this is not a chapel. This is, he calls calls this an evil place Mm -hmm. of the devil. And the Green Knight pops back up. Still guys does before, still green, firm on his feet, and he walks over to the water and, you know, grabs his axe.
1: This is a great scene, too, because he first becomes aware of the Green Knight when he hears him sharpening his axe on the side of the crag.
0: So cool. That would have been way cooler. Uh-huh. Future Mac,
1: another cool thing we left out. So the Green Knight is approaching Gowan, and there's a stream between the two of them. Rather than wade across, the Green Knight vaults across using his axe as a pole. That's just badass. I wanted to make sure everyone knew that happened.
0: Doing what they did in the film, but anyway, as opposed to him like waking up and coming out from, you know, the trees. Anyway, nay, quoth Gawain, by God that gave me my soul, I shall grudge thee not a grain any grief that follows. So he's like, okay, one, one chop. We're done. We're good. Only restrain thee to one stroke, and I shall stand still and offer thee no hindrance. And he bows his neck, lets the flesh appear, and he gave no sign of fear. However, of the green knight, like, brings it up to hit him, and Gawain shrank a little with his shoulders at the sharp iron. So he's jerking yeah, back. Yeah, he, uh, he flinches. Flinching. He flinches. Oh, no. And, and the green knight says... Neither I blenched nor backed when thy blow, sir, thou aimest, nor uttered any cavil in the court of King Arthur. So he's like, my head got chopped off, and I didn't fail in my heart. What's your deal?
1: Yeah, we also get a nice dig at like, look, I heard Gawain was brave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who are you? You can't be Gawain. No. Gawain wouldn't flinch.
0: <laughs> And then Gawain says, I blanched once and I will do so no more. But I can't, you know, restore my own head. But get busy, I beg, (laughs) sir. like
1: he specifies, like, you know that's magic, right? Like, I can't do that. You can do that because you're magic.
0: You're going to kill me, man. And then the green knight literally says, have that thee, then. then? And, you know, heaved up his his axe again. And I thought he flinches again.
1: No, he doesn't. This time the knight teases him. He stops, like, partway through the blow and is like, (laughs) Hey!
0: <laughs> like, hey, you, you didn't actually flinch that time. Good, good job, man. Oh yes, but the man he touched not holding back hastily, and Gawain warily awaited it and winced with no limb. So you know, good on him. Good on him.
1: And he is teasing him the whole time because like he—he he does this fake strike and then stops right before he hits him. He's like, "I thought you were gonna flinch again. Good job." And Gawain's like, "Just do it already." <laughs> <laughs> Just kill me.
0: Just kill me, please. Um, So, here we go. Though he hewed with a hammer swing, he hurt him no more than to snick him on one side and sever the skin through the fair fat sink that the edge and the flesh entered, so that the shining blood o'er his shoulders was shed upon the earth, and when the good knight saw the gore that gleamed on the snow, he sprang out with spurning feet at a spear's length and more, in haste caught his helm, and on his head cast it. Under his fair shield, he shot with a shake of his shoulders, brandished his bright sword, and boldly he spake: "Never since he, as a man-child, of his mother was born, that he ever on this earth so half half happy a man." Have done, sir, with thy dints! Now deal with me no more. So Gawain basically like gets this little cut, and he bolts upright, grabs all of his stuff, and he's like, "Okay, okay, we're done, right?" That counts. That counts. That counted. Yeah. And then, Bertilak said, Fearless knight on this field, so fierce do not be.
1: Yeah, because, spoiler alert, the green knight and Bertillac are the same person.
0: Yep, there we go. And he said, First I menace thee in play with no more than a trial, and clothe thee with no cleft. I had claimed the feint, for the fast pact we affirmed on the first evening, and thou fairly and unfailing didst faith with me keep all thy gains thou me gavest as good as man ought the other trial for the morning man i be tendered when thou kissed my comely wife and the kisses didst render for two here i offered only two harmless feints to make so this is counting why he struck at him three times Mm -hmm. basically and he says i am well aware of thy kisses and thy courteous ways and thy wooing by my wife i worked that myself He's like, ha ha, I was in on the whole thing. I'm Bertilak. By the way,
1: you wanna wanna come back to the castle after this? Like, we can do that some more if you want. Like,
0: yay! But this you sir, a little, and of loyalty came short. But that was for no artful wickedness, nor for wooing either, but because you lived your own life, the less do I blame you. So, (laughs) the Green Knight's basically like, yeah, yeah, you failed, buddy, but like, I get it, because you're human. You're human. And, you know, I chopped off my head. We're all good.
1: But, like, you did fail the test, so you you gotta have that little nick on your neck. But, like, I get it. You know. We can't all be chivalric heroes, you know? I guess it's fine that you're just a regular guy.
0: Whatever. And so Gawain then took the treacherous thing and untying the knot, fiercely flung he the belt at the feet of the knight. See there the falsifier and foul be its fate. So he sort of blames the... The sash, really.
1: Fun note, it's never clear if this thing is actually magic. It's probably just a bit of cloth.
0: Yeah. We don't. Re- we really don't know. But he says, I confess, sir, here to you, all faulty has been my fare. Let me gain your grace anew, and after I will beware. So he's like, I've learned my lesson. And the green knight says, thou hast confessed thee, so clean and acknowledge thine errors. And thou hast penance plain to see from the point of my blade. That is to say, everyone's gonna know because you have this massive yeah. cut on your neck now. Or yeah. well, not massive. That's going to but...
1: leave a scar, my dude. Yeah.
0: And then he gives the girdle back where it is green, like his gown, blah, blah, blah. So you may think of our contest when in the throng thou walkest among pr- the princes with high praise.
1: Besides, I think it looks nice on you. Yeah. That's not in the text. That's what I imagine he's thinking.
0: Yes. So basically, that's that's where we get that. And he's like, well, just, just wear the girdle. And that way you'll remember this whole thing. Ha 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 ha.
1: Then Gawain gets like misogynistic for a bit. He's like, Ugh. "A woman tricked me, like all women."
0: But notably, Bertilac says, "My wife, I know. We shall soon make your friend, who was your bitter foe." So Bertilac's like, "Chill, like chill out," but Gawain goes all, you know, misogynistic for a little while.
1: Which I feel like is him failing another test because, like, he's supposed to be gracious. Like, "Oh, I get it. I get what happened." And instead, he's like, "Your wife is a deceiver."
0: Yeah, like so. Does he learn Each. his lesson? We don't really know. And then Bertollet, like,
1: no, yeah,
0: Bertollet introduces himself and then says, "By the might of Morgan Le Fay, that in my mansion dwelleth, and by the cunning of lore and well learned, I have been made green." Basically, which is implied technically because they think it was lost in the original, so they call her Morgan the Goddess. She made me go in disguise to your goodly court to put its pride to the proof if the report were true that runs the great renown of the round table. Oh, here we go. She put this magic on me to deprive you of your wits in hope Guinevere to hurt that she in horror might die, aghast at that glamour that gruesomely spake with its head in its hand before the high table. So Morgan Le Fay is like doing this to scare Guinevere, but she also wants to test to see whether the... Round table and the knights there are actually worth their salt, whether they're actual heroes. And the answer if we look at Gawain is no.
1: I've read a number of articles that have expressed extreme skepticism about the line that like, oh, this was all just to like give Guinevere a heart attack or something. It's like, was it?
0: Basically nobody believes that.
1: Yeah, no, that's clearly bullshit. <laughs> Come on.
0: Yeah. And so Gawain goes back and he says, The notch in his neck, naked he showed them, that he had for his dishonesty from the hands of the knight in blame. It was torment to tell the truth. In his face the blood did flame, and he groaned for grief and ruth when he showed it to his shame. So does he actually learn? Sort of. Yeah, sure, he's embarrassed by the whole thing. Yeah,
1: you he, 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 see, it's clear that he knows he did something wrong, but it's not clear that he's improved as a person at all. And honestly, again weird misogynistic rant I think is pretty clear that he hasn't because he is basically saying like "Ah, I was because I was tricked by a woman and that's that's and
0: that's why he's ashamed he's ashamed because he was tricked by a lady
1: yeah you're supposed to accept this graciously as a learning opportunity and not just go like women right
0: (laughs) and you failed Gawain you failed in everything which is really funny because in the film he doesn't necessarily fail like did he actually die in the film I think yeah I think he. Oh did yeah, that. clearly. I think he yes, did. definitely. Yeah, and so again, we get this weird subversion where, like, it's not as queer. He doesn't uphold his chastity, but he does uphold his courage. So, what do you do with that? But you know,
1: I mean, he does still make just as many bad decisions in the film as he does in the text. So they kept that.
0: Yes, they did do that for sure. Alrighty, so I've got a couple of sections of notes if we want to get through that.
1: Yes, but first, I do want to note one last thing, because it's it's one of, like, one bit at the end that I really enjoy is that after Gowan explains this, and he's clearly really embarrassed about all of this, all the knights are like, You know what? To remember this, we're all going to wear green girdles to show the lesson we've learned. And he's like, What lesson? And they're like, doesn't matter. We're doing it.
0: Yeah, and like that's where the story ends. That's basically it. So the court doesn't really learn anything. So No, but
1: they all get nice new belts.
0: Yeah, so like, how much does Gawain actually learn? How much does the, the round table actually learn? Is Morgana right in all of this? And so then when we look at this text in a whole context, when you look at it from, okay, so this is sort of the chivalric romance. It's supposed to uphold these Christian values. It's supposed to show, like, These archetypes of good versus evil. We don't have any of that in this poem.
1: Oh, by the way, I just want to say, like, it is required reading for anyone listening that you look up Daniel Mallory Ortberg's article on Sir Gowan and the Green Knight.
0: Ooh, why?
1: You remember the Toast, that website that was, like, just hilariously fun articles, lots of which had, like, a little medieval twist? Oh, yes. Daniel Mallory Ortberg was a writer on there, and one of the articles they wrote was a little summary of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight in, like, script form that is hilarious and dead on.
0: Oh, fantastic. All right. We'll we'll have to link that one. All righty. So, like, getting, getting to this poem and its themes, it's like, you look at it and you're like, okay, so the genre is supposed to tell us something about, you know, good versus evil and, you know, archetypes and blah 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 and instead we have like idiot himbo gawain goes off to you know he didn't he didn't have to chop this guy's head off but he's too much of a man not to so he chops this guy's head off the, the dude picks up his head and he's like all right cool see you next also, year also you chop know
1: if off. anyone had stopped and criticized him in the at in the moment the only justification gawain could possibly give was like Well, look at how he posed. He was asking for it.
0: Right, right. And then
1: everyone would go like, Gowan, do you know how that sounds? What the hell?
0: What the hell? But, you know, we get this weird, you know, toxic chivalric culture where that's the thing. And so I think Morgana is sort of in the right in this whole thing after all, where she's like, yeah, "Yeah, I did test you guys and you guys failed and you guys didn't learn anything by this, but we as readers get to learn something by this. So it it gets fairly metatextual fairly quickly in which King Arthur and his knights may not have learned something, but we get the opportunity to learn something. And so it undermines or subverts all of the traditional values of the chivalric romance, which is really, really funny considering if the point was to subvert that, then the film upholds the original values of -hmm. the chivalric romance. So take that as you will. My point is, the film better upholds the traditional good-evil style of chivalric romance than the medieval text does. The medieval text is better at subverting. I mean, I don't know. It pretty much provides women a more interesting role with more power. And it's more queer. So... I don't know. Take that as you will. I think that the original text is more interesting than the film. I think the film did a fantastic job in some areas, but anyway, not to not to compare this to the film. In
1: I mean, the every book is aspect. always better than the film.
0: I know, yeah, but like you don't expect that from a medieval text.
1: I do. No,
0: okay, that's valid. We expect it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, let's see. One of the
1: subversions that I think happens is normally the series of events is like a challenge is delivered. And everyone rises to the challenge and they show that like all those accusations of cowardice that were thrown at them to rile them up were not true. And they are brave and they're special boys. Mm -hmm. But this time, you get to the end and you're like, you know what? I think he was right. You are a gang of beardless children. That's how you guys came off at the end of the day. Oh
0: yeah, it's ridiculous. Here we go. Okay, so this is by David Boyd. Uh, This is an article called Sodomy, Misogyny, and Displacement, Occluding Queer Desire in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This gets into, like, how that game plays out. And it especially gets into, like, okay, who's screwing who if it did go down? Like, if Gawain slept with the lady, how would that go down? So I said that it's interesting that he's receiving kisses from the lady, but interestingly enough... Boyd points out that, quote, if Gawain had intercourse with Lady Bertilek, who would serve as his receptacle for sexual activity, that is, his gain, he would be required to give Bertilek what he had received. But since Gawain could not very well return the Lady's receptacle to Bertilek in this manner, and therefore reveal the adultery, might not the text imply that the only receptacle logically available to Bertilek as an active exchange was possibly Gawain's own? That is to say, being the penetrated partner in yeah. a homosexual act of sexual intercourse.
1: Yeah, like logically, if you're doing this exchange, if you were the penetrating partner, and then you have to provide that to someone else, you have to be the penetrated partner mm-hmm. in order for it to be an even exchange.
0: Yes, The problem with this game, because he's unaware of Bertolik's involvement in this game, Gawain would find himself responsible for his new friend and lord's predicament for the forward of the game, binds both male partners to participate in the act of exchange. Gawain would not only bear the guilt of perverting an act of homosocial bonding and dishonoring himself, but would also doubly dishonor his lord through sodomy and adultery. So this is where we, like, it's queer, but also it would shame him, and it would also shame his lord. So if he did fail this, then he would be shamed, but he would shame his the lord all the more, which would be more of a shame on Gawain.
1: That's assuming that Bertilac would be in any way shamed by this, because... Like he's clearly aware that that Gawain's saying, like, "Hey, I'm having like a little romance with one of the women in the castle, and I'm giving you like what I get." And there's no indication that Bertalik's like, "Look, you know, if you go far enough, you don't you don't have to like we can we can set up a, a line of what you have to give me." He's like, "That's great. Keep giving me everything you get from this woman."
0: Right, which is fascinating in of itself because we see Bertalik associated with the devil in the Green Chapel, and as Fay and as half a troll, and whatever. So when he's being associated with all of the supernatural stuff, he's also being associated with the devil, which also associates queerness with the devil. So just as much as it subverts all of these things by giving Gawain the possibility of it, it also is saying, no, 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 we still reject all that because Gawain doesn't participate in that. So he fails in his courage, but he's not gay.
1: I mean He was pretty gay. Yeah, he did say that thing. We're like if I had more. He did enjoy it, it
0: yeah, he did enjoy (laughs) it. So he's a little gay. Like, you know, whatever. However, I I feel
1: the dialogue surrounding those kisses definitely doesn't make Gowan come off as straight.
0: That is very, very true. The greater theme here, I think, is that the text is trying to reinforce this heterosexual pattern, but it uses queerness to do that. Mm -hmm. thereby making the text queer even though it's trying to reject queerness.
1: Whoa dude (laughs) it's deep
0: read into that (laughs) as you will (laughs) Um, so there you go. There's that one. Let's see if I have any other interesting highlights here. Yes. Gawain is in a bind. His courtesy, part of his masculine and chivalric identity and reputation cannot permit him to denounce the lady completely. Yet accepting her offer would constitute adultery and perversity. The girdle she offers him in lieu of her body provides Gawain with an out, allowing him to avoid potential homosexual activity. And since the girdle was represented as powerful enough to overcome the blows of the Green Knight, it could preserve Gawain's life. Yes. So he clears that one up. The girdle is a trap. By taking this garment, Gawain privileges it over his shield. By concealing it from like he dishonors his host. By not confessing his deceit, he sins. So he eschews his shield, which has the pentagram on it and the symbol of virtue, in favor of an article of sin, you could call it, or an article of temptation. From the lady, who obviously, because she is a woman, is a temptress. If you can't tell, I'm being facetious.
1: (laughs) Also, every time I read this, I come more and more down on the side of, there is no magic in this girdle. This is just a piece of cloth.
0: I really like that idea.
1: Which does mean that technically, Gawain, the girdle didn't do anything. The power to survive was within you the whole time. (laughs) You just had to not be such a
0: I I feel like this is a lesson that could be learned on several levels by all of Arthur's Court, and we may be able to expand that to a greater portion of the audience, but I'll leave that one there. (laughs) Anyway, uh, interestingly, Boyd, I keep saying that. Interestingly, it is interesting. But regardless, Boyd also notes that, feminized, the girdle is wrapped around his waist. Gawain must kneel before the Green Knight and accept a blow from his massive weapon. Did men not wear girdles. I feel like men wore girdles. I thought that they did, but... See, this one might be a line too far for me because he does compare the axe to, like, a penis and... Gawain has to kneel before him, so he's feminized, which I disagree with in this reading. I think there's plenty of feminizing that is that yeah. you can infer in other places. You don't need to do that here.
1: Also, like a lot of weapons are pretty phallic, but I feel like a single bladed axe, which is what this is, is one of the less phallic looking weapons. It's less available.
0: phallic than a sword.
1: Yeah, by like a long shot.
0: Yeah. Anyway. There's that article, and then, let's see, I think I had one more, and I'll link to a couple other ones, because there's, I mean, there's tons written about going in the Green Knight. You can read, I mean, there's so many articles, but uh, the other one that really interested me... Ah, here we go, okay. This one is interesting, this is by Carl Gray Martin, and it's The Cypher of Chivalry, Violence as Courtly Play in the World of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And this one basically emphasizes how much of a joke chivalric violence is and how much it does embody toxic masculinity. So, quote, (laughs) Chivalry allowed aristocratic brutality to assume rarefied forms, honor, prowess, fealty, and the man-at-arms sublimated the horrors of physical destruction, especially the mutilation and ruin in combat of the human body, including his own. Immune to decapitation's worst effects, the Green Knight only exaggerates how late medieval warrior nobles English and French could conceptualize and experience chivalric violence as courtly play. So the point here in this article is that the whole thing is a game and the Green Knight is representative of that, which I think is a, is yeah. a fantastic reading.
1: Yeah, I mean I have nothing to say because I, I just agree.
0: That's correct. Yeah, Gawain's just he just goes for the whole thing. He's like, sure I'm just going to chop your head off because machismo. Yeah. And then the other one that was interesting was... Magic women and incest: the real challenges in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight by Ivo Camps.
1: Where was the incest?
0: Oh, I can I can get to that. Stand by.
1: I mean, you don't have to skip ahead. I just want to make sure that that's going to be explained, because I don't remember any.
0: It was a theme that I didn't necessarily agree with, I think, in this reading, in the, in the article. Comps notes that it is significant to note that every time Brittleich's lady challenges Gawain to act in accordance with his reputation as a famous and courteous lover, he responds by denying his reputation. He clearly does so in order to avoid having to act in a way that would violate the several oaths he has sworn. We must bear in mind here that the Green Knight and Morgan challenge the Arthurian court to justify its reputation with actions. It is a challenge calling for an assertion of identity for a demonstration of Arthurian ideology's ability to deal with reality. Which, I don't know if reality is the correct word here, but that's a smaller point. Hmm. Britolix Lady handles the bedroom version of the challenge, Gawain fails to meet it. More important than Gawain's personal failure is the inevitable conclusion that within the context of Arthurian ideology, the only context Gawain knows, the situation is irresolvable. So this is when we get back to this idea that it's a catch-22. He can't get out of this in any way that actually works. Yeah. So the incest comes more in with Merlin and Uther Pendragon and Ygrine, which is Arthur's parents and... That's barely in this text. It's not in this text.
1: Yeah. Did they even mention Merlin? Is he even named? Well, okay.
0: He is at the very, very end when they're relating him to Morgana.
1: Ah, okay. Yes. Because, I mean, that's that's the backstory. The audience knows that backstory, but like that is not in this text. Yes.
0: And then in a Vulgate version of the Arthurian romances, Thomas Mallory's treatment of the legend, blah, 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 Merlin fails to keep Arthur from having an incestuous intercourse with his sister, Morgays. Mm-hmm. And then we get Mordred, the bastard son, the final destroyer of Arthur and his society.
1: Also not in this text. No.
0: So I think the connection there has to do with Morgana being a half-sister and the downfall of Arthur's court and her being other. Because in, in all these cases, she's she's an other. I'm probably missing it because I wasn't reading it for that in this case, but I'll link the article so you can, you can find it and read for yourself. Alrighty, mm-hmm. and that's all I had for this one. Okay. <laughs> Shall we go through our, our categories? Yes, let's! Alrighty. Oh. What say you? Best dialogue.
1: That's a tough one, actually. I have
0: to. I've got to go back and pull through it. Yeah. There's some pretty good lines.
1: Yeah, most of them come from either Lord or Lady Bertalac, honestly.
0: I think I'm going to have to go with the one where either Bertalac calls them all beardless children, or at the end when he's like, I thought you were Gawain. But you're really <laughs> <That's> honestly <not. laughs> what
1: I was looking at too. I really yeah. I, I really do think the best one is near the beginning, when he comes in and is like, No, you're like children. I'm here for a game. I'm gonna play with you cause you're children. I am going to actually quote it instead of paraphrasing it. Nay, I wish for no warfare. On my word I tell thee. Hereabout on these benches are but beardless children. <laughs> Were I hasped in armor on a high charger There is no man here to match me Their might is so feeble And so I crave in this court Only a Christmas pastime Since it is Yule and New Year And you are young here and merry I'm here to fight, I'm here to play games Because you're children
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a sick burn It's pretty great I've changed my mind though, my favorite one is when Lady Bertolette threatens to tie going to the bed
1: Oh yeah, that is really good That's
0: my favorite Alrighty.
1: Grant me Gomez.
0: How can we use this in a D game? My first answer here is use the Green Knight as a character, provide challenges. Yeah. Like we covered we covered some of this in the guest episode, but you know, we can we can do some more. We we'll can do some more. We got more ideas.
1: Before I give any ideas, I want to note that the the transition sound bite you just heard is also a quote from Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Because oh, yeah. this segment is entitled "Grand May the Gorman," which is what the Green Knight says. This is true. It's like I'm here to play a game. I'm here
0: to play a game. So yeah, I think I think the idea of a Christmas court, like once your, once your players get to like a high enough level, you know, mm-hmm. where they they do have like their own little court where they're all like hanging out in their little house, somebody bursts in and is like, "Hey, I want to play a game," and obviously it has to be a trick. So can your players do it?
1: Honestly, if your players aren't familiar with the story, which I guess is less likely now that there's a movie. I mean, there was already a movie, but now there's a movie that people have actually seen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There was a Sean Connery one a while back, oh, but it was terrible. No. I'm only aware of it because Dr. Armstrong played the the Green Knight, played by Sean Connery, getting his head chopped off <laughs> of in our Arthurian lit class. And it's really bad. <sighs> like, the, the head is very cheap animatronics. It's just kind of rolling around on the ground going... I'm moving my eyes and teeth mechanically for the listeners. Oh, no. And then after he picks it up, Sean Connery delivers a riddle. And at that point, Dr. Armstrong pauses it and looks at us and is like, that never comes back up. Oh, wow. They never mention
0: it again. Oh, no. God bless that woman.
1: The point is, it's less likely to work now because people will actually know the story, but like people who aren't already medievalists. But if you can get away with it, if you think your players aren't familiar with it, The entire premise of this text Mm -hmm. would be a great, like, series of adventures. Or
0: just recontextualize it. It doesn't have to be the Green Knight. It can be, you know, the Green Dragonborn or the Red Dragonborn or whatever. Like, you can just take the idea, take the premise, and then fold it in as you will. All you really need is a challenge in a game and something that has a trick. That's all you need.
1: Yes. The trick here where he's like, you have to hit me. And then he, like, poses to make it clear that, like, Ooh. my neck's right here, but it, that's not actually part of the rules. That's a good trick. That's a really good trick. That's a trick you trick. can use.
0: Very true. Whether or not you want to seduce anybody as a part of your campaign is up to you. We'll leave that one to you guys.
1: Yeah, you you, you sort that out.
0: Yeah. Anything else?
1: The setting Not the like the whole setting Obviously But the green chapel itself Oh
0: my gosh That's yes. a good set piece That's a really good set piece And then you know The the castle is also A pretty good set piece Having like a random yeah. Lord and lady Who randomly transform Into green people Also fun Pretty cool Or a hunting game You could do like a hunting game and, and, and bring that in In some other way That doesn't have to do with sex Maybe there's Maybe there's treasures Like geocaches Around the house I don't know <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just
0: things out here, man.
1: Take this whole story, chop it up into bits and recontextualize mm-hmm. it and do that.
0: Done. Easy.
1: There's no part of this story that is not already D&D ready.
0: Yeah, this is true. It's a perfect adventure.
1: Also, as we learned when we were doing that episode with book squad goals and as the creepy Facebook thing that listens to me when I talk has now confirmed for oh, me Oh. No alongside the movie they released a tabletop role-playing game like the studio that made the movie so you can get that
0: apparently it's not very well designed (sighs) people from my work were complaining about that but the art is really cool
1: i kind of want to do like a special episode where we run a one-shot in it
0: oh my gosh that would be so dope
1: yeah we could get like a couple other podcasters (sighs) like we could probably we,
0: we could get the girls
1: and we're in that history podcast Discord. I bet we could recruit a couple oh, I'm of them. Oh,
0: sure. That would be pretty good.
1: Yeah. Also, since you're like super good at doing voices, I feel like <laughs> that's just ideal for running a game over a podcast. That's, yeah,
0: that's fair. That's fair. Oh, man. Well, listeners, if you would be interested in that, let us know. We'll just, we'll see, we'll see how that one goes over in the polls.
1: Yeah. I will buy the materials. Even if I'm told it's not (laughs) well-designed.
0: Fair enough. Oh, boy.
1: And I will try and convince Zoe to do the voices, because she's very good at doing NPC voices. I
0: will do the voices. They will be fun voices. (laughs) It's a fantasy world, so they will not necessarily be accurate to anything in the real world, but they will be voices. Yes. All right. Well, this goes into... How many ages hence... Shall this our lofty scene be acted over? Echoes in modern in states culture. Unborn We've and touched on that in the D and D stuff. We've got yeah. the film now. I mean, we still we still have these ideas about chivalric values and mm-hmm. toxic chivalry culture. That's still a thing. Oh, definitely. Machismo's still a thing. Yeah, I mean,
1: of course, all of that's more part of the genre as a whole. True. But true. Yeah, this specific text obviously has echoes in in modern culture because we have movie adaptations of it.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, it's right there. All right. The Tolkien Talif. He translated this text. I will note here, because that is important, I've said Middle-earth a couple times while reading the translation. This was part of Tolkien's translation of it. His use of Middle-earth here is not referring to his world of Middle-earth. This is something that he did in his translation for, apparently, this text as well as Beowulf because he's...
1: It is literally in Beowulf.
0: Yes, it is literally Mid-on-Yard. in Beowulf. But, but he's deciding to carry that over into this translation for some reason. I guess he really liked it, which, you know, makes sense because he wrote a lot of texts about a world called Middle-earth. So we'll give that one to him. Uh-oh. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Well, we've got Goleman. Oh, we've got the, uh hang on, hang on, the horsey breastplate. <laughs> we've got the horsey breastplate, which is the literal... That's what I have here. We also have the word ween, i ween, which is I know. That's a Middle English thing. Okay, where's the horsey breastplate?
1: Honestly, all of the descriptions of like clothing and armor are pretty rich with material. That's so
0: true. Like good terms. Okay, poitrelle, poetrel is a horsey breastplate. There you go. You also got sabatons, which are foot armor. We've got poilons, which are knee armor. Curuses, which are thigh armor, and is it Bernie? I'm never sure how to say that. Birni
1: Birni is how yeah, I usually hear it, it said. Yeah. It. yeah, it's, it's, it's a chainmail shirt. Yeah.
0: So there you go. You can use those as you will.
1: Cappadoce, or however that... Th- you know what? I have the OED. What am I doing? I don't know why I just Googled it and was like, why am I here getting Cappadocia? I'm like I, can- I have a real dictionary. No. What? It's not in here.
0: <gasps> doesn't okay okay hang on doesn't wikipedia usually have the ipa
1: yeah but i couldn't find a uh, wikipedia either oh really i refuse to believe that there is a a word that is not in the oed i've never oh my god i think there is yeah unless it's spelled completely differently
0: hang on i found a JSTOR thing this is not useful at all Cappadoces and the date of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. The word Capados occurring twice in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight has given some difficulty to Middle English scholars. Ah, huh. its derivation is clear from the French cap et dos, which
1: means two hats. I'm probably lying to you.
0: Doubtless means a hood or a close cap descending low on the neck. <laughs> yeah, so it's like the it's like the chainmail ones that go over. You, you have a little face yeah. hole, you know. All right. So go figure. So that's where that comes from. Yeah. We solved it. Oh, and this is this article is by George L. Hamilton, and I will be sure to keep that link so we can cite it.
1: Holly Bob. A bob of holly, a branch of holly that signifies truce. Oh,
0: I like that. We should use that. In yeah, D&D. that's also
1: something you could use in your D&D game.
0: That's a good one. That one's very good. All right. Uh-huh. Street smarts. Street smarts. Well, first off, if a guy challenges you to a game, please play a game and don't decapitate him. Especially if he looks like a fairy guy. Like, come on, you guys.
1: If you're agreeing to something, you can ask questions and go like, Hey, so I see that you're posing with your neck available. Do I have to hit your neck?
0: Good question. A very good question. Ask all the questions. Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else? Any other lessons learned?
1: Follow the rules when you're playing a game.
0: Mm -hmm. Be a good player.
1: When bad things happen to you, it's not because women are evil.
0: That's a really big one. Yeah. Come on, you guys. Take responsibility when you mess up. There you go. Responsibility covers a multitude of sins. All right. Best moment. Best moment. I I think it's the initial decapitation. It's very good. That's my favorite scene in this whole thing. Like, he rides in, we get this idea of, like, how sexy this guy looks, and then going chops his head off, and he's like, no biggie. That's my favorite scene.
1: I would say that the best parts are definitely the ones that happen at the Green Chapel.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: I'm torn between, like, him showing up, going like, this is a creepy f-ing place, and then you hear, like, someone sharpening an axe right nearby. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Excellent atmosphere. Yeah, they
0: they really, really missed that, didn't they, in the, in the film? That's a shame. Also,
1: I really liked the, like, series of chops. They're like, ah, you flinched. Ah, you didn't flinch that time. What are you doing? Just do the thing. And then
0: he, oh, he actually man. cuts him a little. He's like, that counts! That counts! And
1: the whole thing is great.
0: It's so funny. Like, it's such a comedy. All right. The Court.
1: After some discussion, we decided to skip this because too many of the characters are ambiguously mortal. So it's really not clear who's eligible. Final rating!
0: I'll let you go first on this one.
1: What? Ten. It's a ten. It's a ten out of ten.
0: I think, yeah, I'm gonna have to... Okay, okay, well, even even with the little misogyny bit at the end, like, we still... Like, Bertalex is just like, bro, chill. Yeah,
1: like, there is that weird misogyny bit at the end... But it's not clear that the author endorses that. The way I read That's it, the true. author is definitely like, this is Gawain being it
0: All right, cool. 10 out of 10. We'll give it a 10 out of 10. It's a great text.
1: Like I said near the beginning, this is a work of genius that some, some like lone author out in, what where is it? The North Midlands?
0: North Midlands.
1: Produced a book of amazing poetry and then just... Right out of history without leaving his name behind. What a legend. Or her, because again, there have been arguments that the poet could be a woman.
0: That's, yeah, that's fair. Well, we salute you, Gawain Poet. Alrighty. Instead of doing Leech's Corner today, do you want to do our, uh... uh, a, uh Punk, a messenger. Yes, let's do that, because
1: you said you had Alrighty. a good Alrighty.
0: I do, which I will reply to tomorrow morning. Uh, But I wanted to share it with you before I compiled a reply. So here we go. This is from a return listener. Hooray! Azam Caesar. He says, Hi, Mac and Zoe. Thank you for reading my previous email. I do go by he, him, and I'm not too picky with the pronunciation of my name. So cool. Since you've mentioned you wish to explore a Southeast Asian text, I have compiled text that you might be interested in covering. (laughs) Ooh, Mac just got very excited. So this is really, really cool.
1: Yeah, again, my <laughs> gestures are not very, coming very through, exciting. but I am thrilled.
0: Uh, I did have some trouble searching for them. I'm using a more loose definition of Middle Ages for Southeast Asia, and that text, if they were written at all, due to many cultures retaining orality for quite a long while, don't survive in the region for very long due to either environmental, namely humidity, or human factors.
1: This has been my concern. I want the podcast to visit that part of the world sometime, but I don't know what qualifies as a medieval text exactly. for that part That's of the world. The thing. So... Having someone from Southeast Asia say, like, I thought about it, and these, are, these might be medieval texts, I feel like Absolutely. that's the best we're going to get.
0: And finally, the fact that English translations of the sources are hard to find sometimes, which is totally reasonable.
1: They super All right, odd. so here That's we right. go.
0: Here's our list. First is, and I'm probably going to get some of these pronunciations wrong, even though, Azam, you have written some of them down. <laughs> so here we go. The <laughs> Malay Annals, circa 15th, 16th century. This one starts with a character that is shared with the European medieval corpus, a fictionalized version of Alexander the Great, or in this case, Alexander, who's been identified with the Quranic figure, du her name. the common ancestor for many Malay sultanates. And we've got a link to each of these, which is fantastic. And the next one is the—I don't think I've ever seen you grin this fully before, like for the, for this long. I'm so this excited! Really cool. Okay, the <laughs> okay. So the next one is the Glass Palace Chronicle, compiled in the 1820s, which was way after the medieval and early modern period. But this chronicle is trying to compile and settle discrepancies from previous Burmese chronicles, some of which are written during the medieval period, which we have a lot of these as well in Europe.
1: Yeah. I've heard of that. James C. Scott cites the Glass Palace Chronicle extensively in his book, The Art of Not Being Governed. Interesting.
0: Then there is the the Boogies Boogies. Chronicle of Boney, circa late 1600s. As with the chronicles above, it explores a lot of the mythic history of the rulers of Boney. And then we have a very long name. Here we go. Nagara Kratagama. Hopefully I got that close to right.
1: Readers, if you've been hearing, like, some points where it sounds like one of us has suddenly been dubbed over this conversation, it's because we went back and checked, and that's... Yeah, we've, we're trying to fix it. here. Oh. I hope I got them right. You know what else is hard to find? Free online pronunciation guides for these words. So I'm probably going to have to invest in some kind of linguistic guide before I tackle these texts for the podcast. But I really do want to do these, so I am, in fact, going to find and buy whatever books are necessary for me to not sound like an idiot American when I read them.
0: Yes. Written in 1365, so actually during the medieval period. However, it is rather dense as a text and more descriptive than narrative, so I'm unsure how much you can get out of it as an episode. Well, that is okay, because I think we can turn in anything into an episode of us at least ranting. So... I hope at least one of them is useful. They may not fit snugly in the usual medieval timeframe, but they do at least show how these peoples reflect on their own Middle Ages in their own words, which is what we're looking for.
1: As I've mentioned before, medieval is a very kind of flexible definition that changes region to region. Literally, it's the Middle Age. It's the period between the ancient or classical civilization and the modern civilization. Anything in between those, that's the medieval period, which obviously differs Place to place, because whatever you consider ancient or classical from your region is going to be at a different yes, time.
0: for sure. Okay, a little bit more. Last time I mentioned I was writing a setting based on early modern Southeast Asia, and to explain more on that, it's a world where, due to a magical disaster, caused villages, towns, and cities, and whole islands to be raised up into the skies to escape the catastrophe down below, and several centuries afterwards, people resettle to the land down below, and international trade is reestablished. I will share another detail because it relates to your latest episode on the Great Tang Records. In my setting, I've made a fantasy parallel to Buddhism, but instead of the aim to become a Buddha, the goal is for this religion to become a dragon. That is so cool. Much like in Buddhism, the paths toward that are varied, some more esoteric than others. That is so cool. Yes. That is fantastic. If you have anything more that you want to share with us about that, Azam, I would love to see that. The art. I'm just thinking of the art that could be made.
1: Oh, man. That does go for the rest of you, too, by the way. If any of you listeners out there have cool homebrew stuff you want to share,
0: we'd love to hear about it. Okay, Pelsa writes, related to Southeast Asia D&D settings, have you heard about a published setting called The Islands of Sina Una? It is based on pre-colonial Filipino society and mythology, and I think it's very good. The best part of it is one of the appendices called Research, History, and R Adaptation, which talks about their decisions on what they added, changed, and removed altogether to fit D&D and their players. I think it should be more, a more common section in TTRPG publications, taking inspiration from culture, history, and mythology to dedicate a section like that. Apologies for the lengthy email, I didn't expect it to be quite long. Also, Always looking forward to your next episodes. Warm regards, AC.
1: I am so thrilled with it. I haven't heard of this. Islands of Sina yes, Una, Islands say? of
0: Sina Una. That is really cool. I agree. That would be a really interesting section to have if people want to find what the original sources for this stuff is, because that's that's how I got mm-hmm. interested in this in the first place, was I read Lord of the Rings, I read Aragon. I read fantasy stuff, and I was like, okay, where did that come from? That had to come from somewhere, and I wanted to figure out what that was.
1: It depends on like what era of tabletop role-playing games you're looking at, because the first edition of mm-hmm. D&D, there was an appendix in the rulebook that was a list of source That's materials, so cool. but it's not always mm-hmm. done anymore. I feel like it should have been something we held on to much more closely.
0: I'd agree. I think it's because the lore has gotten so big.
1: Yeah. D&D has almost become its own oh, mythos. Oh, for sure. It
0: definitely has. Yeah, but awesome. Thank you so much, Azam, for sharing this stuff with us. And never apologize for your lengthy emails. We we live for these things. So please send us all the emails that you want. That goes for you. That goes for anybody else who's listening. We love hearing from you guys and learning and, you know, correct us. Like, call us out yeah. on stuff. You know, we always appreciate that.
1: And if you have texts you think it would be fun to hear us cover, please let us know. We yes, will do it.
0: please, please, please. But anyway, I think that is all we've got for this episode. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, the maniculum podcast to join in on discussions about all things medieval and feel free to reach out we're on twitter at maniculum and on instagram at maniculum podcast we'd love to hear from you and special thanks to Sandra boyle who created the music for our show you can check out her project sugar glass on spotify my mac is gonna die hang on let me grab the charger I'm a professional. I feel fine. I'm so well prepared. Okay. I think I'll go.
1: <laughs> I feel happy. I feel happy. Okay. There we go.